RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 351, Rules of Engagement. another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the morals, meanings, and messages of each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, Rules of Engagement, otherwise known as A Few Good Klingons, where John and I discuss whether or not the words honor, code, loyalty, are in fact the backbone of an empire meant to stand for something, or just used for a punchline when needed. We'll engage with rules of engagement in a moment, but first, a word from ExpressVPN, giving you back your internet privacy. Norman, I've talked uh, many times about how I'm a fan of ExpressVPN. Uh, First of all, it keeps my internet browsing private and secure. It's also easy to set up. It's also fast. And I realize that over the last several weeks, well, we've all been working from home a lot more. And I do everything from home. And I do it all through ExpressVPN. Of course, I'm doing work. Of course, I'm doing my banking and paying bills. And I'm doing a lot more communications with people over uh, the internet as well, whether it's video conferences or phone calls. All of that is data that I want to keep private and secure. Now, ExpressVPN to me is the easiest way to do that. I simply log in and I can see very easily if it's switched on or switched off. And when I do switch it on, ExpressVPN keeps my internet connection fast as well as secure. And hey, there's a little known upshot to using ExpressVPN because it allows you to change location. You can get and stream data like news information from all over the world. So protect yourself today with ExpressVPN. It costs less than $7 a month and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And wherever and however I'm working, ExpressVPN protects my connections and at speeds that impress me every time. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash missionlog for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash missionlog to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. Now, if you'd like to get in contact with us, please follow us at the following subspace signals. Now, the mission of Mission Log isn't just about us. It's about you, too. And that's why we want to hear from you. If you're so inclined, please give us a like or share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, or leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We'll share them on an upcoming supplemental episode. You can also reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. 
Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, I've been advised by legal counsel that I have gone over my allotted time, and I must relinquish the floor for Mission Log Trivia with John Champion, Esquire. Thank you, Norman. You'll hear from my attorney about that. Today's story, Rules of Engagement, was written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle. The first story credit that we have here on DS9 for these two, and it's an interesting circumstance that got them here and, well, signed on for many episodes. With only a couple of professional credits under his name, David was friends with Ira Stephen Bear. Uh, The two share a huge mutual appreciation for Sam Peckinpah. In fact, David had written a biography on Peckinpah, which Ira loved. And since a lot of this business is who you know, David was offered a job on the writing staff for DS9. At the time, he managed to convince the staff to hire his writing partner, Bradley Thompson. Uh, David had a tour of the DS9 set with Ira, and uh, Ira convinced him to pitch a story. It turns out, in this case, a story inspired by the real-world incident of Iranian airliner 655, which was shot down on accident by a U.S. Navy ship. Now, this writing team worked out just fine, and Bradley continued to write with David, while David took on even more story and script credits on his own. They both continued to work together on Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica right up through his show for Apple TV for all mankind. Speaking of Ron Moore, well, the teleplay is credited to him. I mean, sure it is. There are Klingons at the center. That's not always Ron's purview, but it's pretty much always a good bet. This story, uh, by the way, would have originally focused on Cisco. And uh, just to add another layer of technical intrigue, it even featured a holographic ship in question. Ira nixed that idea and brought it back around to Worf and a real Klingon ship. We also have Ira to thank for the convention of allowing the characters to speak directly to the camera and by doing so breaking that fourth wall. We'll talk more about that later, I'm sure. This episode was directed by LeVar Burton, and here's LeVar really putting in the overtime hours as a director on DS9. We just reviewed his episode, Bar Association, and he will be back for six more episodes here, then on to Voyager and Enterprise. Let's talk about guest stars. We have Admiral Talara, played here by Deborah Strang in her only Trek appearance. She's made the rounds on a number of soap operas like Port Charles, General Hospital, and Days of Our Lives. She also has picked up a number of TV guest roles, some feature films along the way like Kiss the Girls, and a few voice acting roles like Mae Parker in the animated The Spectacular Spider-Man. Finally, Ron Canada steps in as Klingon advocate Chapak. He's not new to Trek. We did see him back in Season 5 of Next Gen on The Masterpiece Society. Like many other Trek actors, Ron has a background in live theater, as well as TV and feature films. He may be the only so far who actually had an extensive career as a TV news reporter as well. For that, he picked up a local Emmy for his Washington, D.C. correspondence work and another award from the Associated Press, both in the late 70s. He's definitely one of those actors who works all the time, and some of his other Trek crossover roles include recurring stints on both Boston Legal and, more recently, on The Orville. He will be back one more time on Star Trek in yet another alien role in a few years on Voyager. 
In the criminal justice system, Worf is represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the shapeshifter who investigates crime, and, well, Captain Sisko. This is their story. Prologue. With Batleth in hand, Worf races towards the Bridge of the Defiant only to be met with the horror of seeing his crew, their bodies charred and bloodied, slain by the hands of a Klingon boarding party who have their Batleths raised in triumph and chanting in victory. As he enters the bridge, Worf comes face to face with the lifeless gazes of several dead Klingon children. As he cries out in terror, he soon realizes that he has awakened from a nightmare and is in one of Constable Odo's holding cells, awaiting trial. Act 1. In Deep Space Nine's wardroom, Vulcan Starfleet Admiral Talara calls the hearing to order. The Klingon Empire has requested Lieutenant Commander Worf to be extradited for trial on charges of murder. Representing the High Command is Klingon Advocate Chapak, who states that on Stardate 49648, while in command of the USS Defiant in the Pentath system, Worf deliberately fired on and destroyed a Klingon transport ship, murdering 441 civilians in the process. Chapak's goal is to prove that Worf's gross negligence of command and lack of moral judgment was due to his inherent Klingon bloodlust for combat. Captain Sisko, acting as Worf's legal counsel, rebukes Chapak's allegations by stating that Worf and the Defiant were under attack in a live combat situation, and that Worf's decision, which resulted in tragic loss of life, was simply an unavoidable accident. After the preliminary hearing, Sisko asks Odo to tap his network of contacts in the Klingon Empire. Sisko wants to use anything unsavory about the Klingon freighter captain to cast doubt on his credibility. As Odo takes his leave, Chapak approaches the captain with a list of witnesses he intends to examine. He remarks that once Worf is extradited, the Federation's position in the Quadrant will be weakened by admitting that Worf is in fact a murderer, and any Klingon retaliation or reprisal will thusly be justified in the court of public opinion. And even though not a warrior per se, Chapak admits that he is looking forward to fighting Sisko for claim and victory over Worf's case on the battlefield of legal proceedings. As the hearing reconvenes, Chapak surprisingly capitulates to the accuracies of the case. He believes what truly matters, and what Worf must be tried for, is what is in Worf's heart when he fired on the civilian transport, for only Klingons reserve the right to prosecute the bloodlust of other Klingons. Sisko argues that it is impossible to prosecute Worf's intent, but the Admiral allows Chapak to pursue his investigation, but only to its logical conclusion. Chapak calls Dax as his first witness and establishes her expertise in Klingon society, or more specifically, Curzons. As she endures Chapak's examination, Dax maintains that Worf is always in control of his warrior's rage and instinct for battle and knows when to pull back from a point of no return. However, Chapak enters a copy of Worf's personal database into evidence, to which Worf has no objections, for he admits he has nothing to hide. Chapak asks Dax if she is familiar with Worf's Holosuite program of the Battle of Tong Vei. She explains it is an historical reenactment of one of the most epic battles in Klingon history, in which 10,000 warriors are commanded by Emperor Sompek to conquer the city of Tong Vei, raise it to the ground, and execute every single civilian, soldiers, women, and children alike. And because this is Worf's personal Holosuite program, he inhabits the role of Sompek reinforcing Chapak's point even further. 
Dax admits that Worf plays out the scenario to its ultimate conclusion, that the battle is only won after Sompek, in this case Worf, orders his warriors to kill everyone in Tongvei. Circling back to his point of establishing what is in Worf's heart when he fired on the transport, Chapak has Dax read aloud a very damning line of evidence, that Worf engaged the Battle of Tongvei program the day before he left on the convoy mission. Act 2. Captain Sisko, now on the witness stand, recounts his decision to give Worf command of the Defiant on the convoy mission in question. Sisko states that the Cardassians were preparing several convoys of medical aid and supplies for their colonists living on Pentath Three, which has recently been struck by a Redellian plague. Sisko elaborates that the Pentath system borders Klingon territory, and that the Cardassians are worried about raids, so they have asked Starfleet for protection. Agreeing to the immediate need for humanitarian aid, Starfleet agreed to assign one Federation starship escort to each of the seven convoys. Due to his exemplary Starfleet record and familiarity with Klingon affairs, Worf was chosen by Sisko as a logical candidate for this mission. Chapak interrupts and asks Sisko if he was at all concerned with Worf's inherent lust for combat, to which Sisko refuted, stating that Worf knew he was on a humanitarian relief mission. Quark has now been called to the witness stand and tries to piece together his testimony, starting with Bashir's conversation with one of the Dabo girls, Etheria, Noglidia, no, Midia. No, it was Relidia, and she was with Morn. Now that that's settled, Quark continues by stating that Worf walked into the bar, sat down, and ordered a glass of prune juice, and was strangely in what Quark observed as Worf being in a good mood. For a Klingon, that is. Making the usual bartender small talk, Quark asked Worf about the convoy missions, but Worf was tight-lipped about it. However, Quark remembers specifically asking him what would happen if the Klingons go after the convoy, to which Worf replied, I hope they do. Act 3. During a break from the proceedings, Sisko checks in with Odo, but to no avail. Based on what Odo was able to uncover, the Klingon captain's reputation was quite simply unremarkable. Sisko asks Odo to keep digging to see if there's anything they can use to their advantage. A grudge against Worf. An agenda against the Federation. Something. Anything. Back in the hearing, it is Chief O'Brien's turn to testify about what happened on the Defiant while under Worf's command. He states that the Defiant was taking heavy fire, was being led away from the convoy, and that Worf saw a tactical pattern in their hit-and-run strategy. As soon as O'Brien reported a tachyon surge dead ahead of them, Worf ordered the chief to fire. Relief turned quickly to horror when all on the Defiant realized that it wasn't a decloaking bird of prey. Chapak asks O'Brien if he agreed with Worf's order to fire to which the chief states that he supports Worf's decision. But Chapak finds this answer evasive and presses the chief, who in turn digs in by elaborating on his relationship with Worf, their service time together aboard the USS Enterprise, and how he unwaveringly supports Worf as his commander, one who the chief feels he has no right or station to question. Establishing that O'Brien is a well-seasoned Starfleet-trained combat veteran of over 235 separate engagements, Chapak asks the chief what he would have done if in command, theoretically. Would he have fired on the ship? To which the chief said no, but with a caveat that he wasn't in command that day, and that things looked different when sitting in the chair of command. Later in the replimat, as Sisko contemplates his next course of action, Chapak sits across from him and appeals for Sisko to concede and surrender Worf to Klingon justice. Chapak loves the thrill of legal battle so much, he's even willing to defend Worf against the death penalty. 
But Cisco knows that this trial is not about justice. It's about control over the Pentath system, to which Chapak sees as icing on the cake of this entire affair. Act 4. Outside of the wardroom, Odo is the bearer of bad news, as his investigation has reached a dead end, and there are no dubious connections to Worf's case with any of the victims on that transport. But Odo reassures the captain that he will keep digging. Inside the wardroom, the proceedings continue with Lieutenant Commander Worf on the witness stand, recounting his details of the incident. Captain Sisko bombards Worf with questions regarding every single detail of his command decisions, from when Worf left to protect the convoy, to when he ordered to fire on what he believed was a decloaking bird of prey. Within this line of questioning, Sisko also made certain to establish that it was Worf's tactical analysis and Starfleet training, not his warrior's bloodlust, that informed his decision to fire, and Worf admits, under the same circumstances, he would choose to do so again. It is now Chapak's turn, and he begins by establishing why Worf has been outcast by his own people. Through a detailed examination of Worf's transgressions, which began with taking a stand against Gowron during the Kardashian invasion, and ending in the complete dismantling and dishonor of the House of Moog, including Worf's brother Kern and son Alexander, Chapak exposes both humiliating and personal juxtapositions regarding who Worf really is, or isn't. Is he Federation, or Klingon? Is he loyal to the Empire, or a traitor? Is he an honorable warrior, or a murdering coward? Amidst the objections and protests of both Sisko and the Admiral, Chapak pushes Worf over the edge, telling him that Alexander will only ever be known as the son of a coward who murdered innocent children just to prove his quality as a warrior. And with that, Worf pummels Chapak to the ground as Sisko and the Admiral watch with disbelief. Act 5. The hearing is now in recess, and Sisko anxiously awaits the Admiral's decision. Odo suddenly hands him a very important pad, which Sisko then uses to interrupt the Admiral's deliberations and reconvene the proceedings. Sisko enters this pad as new evidence and invites Advocate Chapak onto his battlefield. Sisko maneuvers Chapak into agreeing that there is in fact a level of distrust and paranoia between their governments. They are not friends, nor enemies, nor allies. Each organization exhibits a prudent and mutual distrust of the other based on mutual acts of deception, and in this case, the deception of what actually happened to the 441 innocent civilians who Chapak declares as having died at the hands of a coward. However, Odo did in fact unearth very crucial details pertinent to this case, 441 details as a matter of fact, to which he gave Sisko on that very important pad. According to that information, three months prior to this hearing, a Klingon transport ship crashed in the mountains of Galorta Prime. The names of those passengers, all of whom died in that crash, were used to create a new passenger manifest for a certain cargo ship through broadcasting false sensor images would appear before a Federation ship commanded by a certain Klingon Starfleet officer, if in fact the only Klingon serving in Starfleet so that he would be blamed, the Federation would be forced into stop escorting Cardassian convoys, and that the Empire would seize control of the Pentath system. All to which Sisko asked Chapak, to all of these allegations, isn't it possible? And to which a defeated Chapak exhales, yes. Later on the Defiant, Worf admits to Sisko that Chapak did in fact get the best of him, proving that he did in fact seek out opportunities for vengeance for what the Empire has done to him. Sisko chastises War for his actions, citing that when wearing the Starfleet uniform, civilian lives come before all else, 
no matter the cost, professional, personal, or otherwise. As Captain Sisko persuades Worf to join his own post-hearing victory celebration, Worf laments the weight of his responsibility that comes with wearing the red uniform, to which Sisko replies, Wait, you'll get four pips on that collar. You'll wish you had gone into botany. The end. Botany? Botany Bay? Oh, no. no. (laughs) Different movie. Hey, that's cool. Like, if you don't kill a bunch of people, you get a party. Oh, yeah. That's, you know. No harm, no foul, right? That just makes sense. Let's throw a party. Really, really need to have a party for this. You know, I found that it was interesting that Cisco was chosen for Worf's legal counsel in these proceedings. Yes. I thought that because of the weight of what was going on, that Worf was going to be extradited to the Klingon Empire and turned over to their system of justice. That mm-hmm. obviously the Empire sent in probably their best, you know, legal counsel, and Worf is represented by Cisco. And I'm not saying he couldn't do it. I'm just saying that wouldn't Starfleet have their own lawyer for this? Right. There have to be Starfleet lawyers just ready to go with this kind of thing. Come on. I mean, where's uh, where's Samuel T. Cogley? He's still practicing somewhere. <laughs> He's got to be. That's a deep cut reference. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, that is. uh, Although, man, Chapak is so well suited for this. He should actually have his own show, I think. It should just be, you know, Chapak, Klingon lawyer, coming to NBC this fall. (laughs) That that should be totally a thing. Well, you know, also, I felt that Chapak... You know, he. I, I believe that the odds were stacked against him because when you think about it, he has to travel to Deep Space Nine. He has no allies on the station, and he walks into a mm-hmm. wardroom, a makeshift courtroom that has one Federation legal counsel that represents Worf, and also a Federation admiral who's he's residing over the proceedings. Isn't that less than uh, objective? Right. Yeah, I did wonder how you justify that. I mean, yes, Worf is a Starfleet officer, Starfleet being the sort of quasi-military thing. What channels do you have to go through to say, no, he's ours now? You'd have to have some cooperation from Starfleet, but it does seem like the scales are a bit more tipped in Starfleet's favor and therefore Worf's favor in this. You just have to assume that they're going to do the right thing here. Un- yeah, you know, it is and, a little strange. Unless, of course, that because the Admiral is a Vulcan, a Vulcan would be dispassionate against anything but the facts. Although she is not always dispassionate. I, I, I actually had to go back and go, all right, wait a minute. Is she de- yeah, she's definitely Vulcan, but sometimes her, her ire gets raised a little. <laughs> I was, I was kind of surprised there with that. I thought uh, uh, Chapak had this line, it's a matter of pride for the Federation that Starfleet officers never lie or commit fraud. And I thought that's so cute. He must have watched Justice. And the words of Wesley Crusher really affected Chapak. He must have like, yeah, that's right. They don't lie. And at the same time, whoever has the bigger guns wins the bigger legal proceedings. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. All right. Uh, You mentioned it in the recap, and I love it. Bashir talking to the Dabo girls. (laughs) And and Quark telling the story. And then made even better by incorporating Morn into the bit. He almost spoke. What a tease. 
perfect. <laughs> that, that edit was perfect. I mean, it's not only a great setup, but that edit was absolutely perfect. Just this jump right back into the uh, into the courtroom. Loved it. Such a good bit. Odo had this interesting line, I'm always suspicious of people who are eager to help a police officer. <laughs> it's so, it's funny, like, it's so perfectly Odo. That is a great line for him. I mean, yet he sort of paints himself into this corner by saying that or by definitely believing that, you know, well, wait, but if they're here to help you, you don't believe them. But if you don't believe them, how are you going to get help? Odo, Odo, you're making this too difficult. But it also kind of gives him that out of, I'm going to keep digging because I'm suspicious. Right, right. Just always, just Odo, a constant state of suspicion. Uh, that, that is his defining trait there. Um, hey, let's talk about uh, cool ships here for a minute. So O'Brien says in, in his scenes here, there are two Klingon ships, a bird of prey, and an old battle cruiser. So first of all, very cool to see these two on screen together in this scenario. But that bird of prey is old too, right? I mean, we, we've been seeing it since Star Trek Three. Isn't that when we got introduced to the Bird of Prey? So about 100 years ago in the Star Trek timeline. And the Battlecruiser is old too, although there have been many variations on that design in different time periods. And in this era, they generally have that green-tinted paint job to sort of reflect the way that the Bird of Prey looks. Um, I mean, they both look awesome. And I am a big fan of that original uh, battle cruiser design. I just think it's so slick. But yeah, it, it was funny to hear him say like, "Oh, it's this old thing next to this new thing." No, not not really new. <laughs> Bird of prey, not new. Something that I like in this episode quite a bit: uh, Chapak and Cisco's interactions outside the courtroom. Mm-hmm. I thought just spoke volumes about what we get inside the courtroom too. So good, so so well played, and just two terrific actors together uh, on screen. Chapak has this line when he's sort of needling Quark. He says, the person I pity most is Alexander, to which I expected Worf to say, who? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and you would Didn't. think, because of the way that we have kind of poked fun at the way that Worf dismisses his son throughout the course of, I don't know, every time that we talk to him or, or see him talk, <laughs> right, that right. this would have been the moment when he said that Alexander will be shamed because his father will only be known as a coward and a murderer of children. Mm-hmm. That's when Worf, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. basically he, he sabotages the entire, uh, the entire trial and his defense and, and attacks a Klingon yeah. official. Yeah. I mean, that's not, that should not be taken lightly as a point. Right. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And man, this whole thing caps off with a Cisco talk. Mm. What That is quite the talk. And, and I, I love how he leads Worf into it. That was your first mistake. What was the second? Mm-hmm. I mean, boom. Oh, it's just so good. But then, but then he gives it, it's like the feedback sandwich. At the end, it's like, oh, hey, you're going to earn that extra rank pip, and one day you'll be captain. And I thought, oh, how cute. We're, we're finally setting him up for Captain Worf. I, I can't wait until we get there in the series. <laughs> Eventually. <Agreed. laughs> yes. Still, still waiting. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about probably the 
best part of this episode, and that's Ron Canada. Mm. Oh, a- absolutely. Yes. I mean, Ron Canada, even though he's acting behind all of the Klingon makeup applications, if you really watch his performance and really just soak in like what he is doing as this advocate, I think that his performance is remarkable, and it's just a pleasure to watch. And there's this, even though he's not a warrior, a warrior per se, he still has that warrior's instinct to try and beat down his opponent and make them submit and to claim victory over whatever you're arguing about. He could be debating over the color of the sky. Like he said, I would, I would actually advocate for Worf against the death penalty because I love the verbal fighting so much that this is, this is me as a warrior. Yeah, he's a warrior in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. See that again. That's why I think he just has to have his own series. I would watch that, man. <laughs> Rules of Engagement, a Quinn Martin production, starring Michael Dorn as Lieutenant Commander Ward, an innocent victim of blind justice. We will re-engage Rules of Engagement in a moment. But first, a word from Mint Mobile. Hey, it's 2020, and I've got a question for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you been looking at your wireless bill lately? Uh, Because it's just a hunch. Well, maybe not a hunch. Maybe the actual truth that uh, you're probably paying too much. Yeah, you. You're probably paying too much on your wireless bill. So look, network coverage is better than ever. I mean, no matter who your wireless provider may be. So why are you paying more for the exact same service? That's where Mint Mobile comes in. They can cut your bill down to 15 bucks a month for the same premium coverage. Now, I know that you're probably thinking this is too good to be true, but uh, believe me, these guys know exactly what they're doing. Here's the thing. With your current wireless bill, you're not just paying for the service. You're paying for expensive retail stores. You're paying for marketing and overhead and all the other expenses that come along with it. So that's why Mint Mobile came in and said, look, we're going to reimagine the whole way that you buy wireless. And we put it all online. So without all that expensive overhead, they just pass the savings on to you. So Mint Mobile makes it very easy to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text, plus very fast 4G LTE. And you can use your phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. So if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. In today's dynamic of the lockdowns, everyone should at least have a little bit personal responsibility in looking at your own bills. This is your money, and you have to make your money stretch as far as possible for as long as possible. And this is where the Mint Mobile plan will work for you. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. So it's interesting, Norman. Earlier on, you said something about um, uh, Chapak coming in and, and sort of working within this system that may seem a little tipped unfairly towards Starfleet because you have this admiral, Admiral Talara there, 
And um, but he's you know he's playing by the rules and he's he's doing what he can and they want to extradite Worf so they can take care of him. But I, I part of me just wondered. Is this whole thing a little out of step for Klingons anyway? I mean, look, we know that they have lawyers, and and they had this show trial in Star Trek VI, which I think is just one of the great scenes out of a great Star Trek movie, no matter what. But recently in DS9, our Klingon stories have just been about Klingons doing whatever they want to do. I, I mean, I, hey, you want to exact revenge on someone? Do it. You want to fulfill a blood oath? Yeah, go do it. I'm I'm more surprised that we would see Chapak, an advocate, show up and try to work within the system here than just some Klingon assassins sent to go after Worf. You know? I mean, like, either way, I'm just like, yeah, sure, they, they would do that. These are the Klingons that we're seeing now. You know, I was thinking about this more and more and more. And I'm wondering what about the Klingon culture isn't sitting well with me right now. And it was the same mm-hmm. thing, albeit you know treated differently and written differently, but it's the same thing that we talked about with the Bajorans saying that the prophets will it. In this case, mm. it's honor deems it. Honor requires yeah. it. Using that statement as a blanket statement to justify anything that the Klingons want to do and are justified in doing it, I think, is what unsettles me most about many of the decisions that Worf believes he is in the right to do or how Klingon culture defends those and justifies those decisions just because their culture allows them to hide behind that. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we get to do that with all kinds of words that we don't we don't start out by agreeing upon the definition. You know, Klingons get to use words like honor. Um, Vulcans get to use a word like logic. And and sure, you can follow logical arguments, but it also allows Vulcans to sometimes do some terrible things under the name of logic, like, oh, Sarek being a terrible father. <laughs> or, I, you know, we, we talked last time about faith and how this is a a complicated word that has different meanings for different people. And the unfortunate thing is it just allows interpretation to completely run free and justify some really bad decisions. We, again, all of this is reflective of human values and, and the human experience, and we humans do this all the time. We can wrap up something in a word like uh, uh, patriotism or whatever, which means something different to different people, and yet you can say, well, I did this because of this reason. And if you challenge me, well, you're, you're just against that entire concept. Well, you, you just don't get the entire meaning at all. You know, I like, uh, the, there are some great lines in this episode, for sure. This is not a fight. It's a search for truth. So I, I like Cisco laying down exactly what, you know, the position is that he's taking on this. And yet, at the same time, it, it is a fight. And he, he's up against somebody who's playing by a different set of standards and a different set of rules. And those rules and those standards, I thought, were very interesting. So Chapak says, we Klingons are not concerned with matters of fact or circumstance. What matters to us is what was in Worf's heart when he gave the order to fire. 
Cisco counters with, we can't put a man's heart on trial. It's a subjective issue that cannot be reasoned in a court of law. Now, I found that to be super interesting because Cisco's right, you know, and, and from our human understanding, uh, and particularly from the 20th or 21st century point of view in the Western world, how we carry out trials and, and how the, the criminal justice system works, He's right. We, we are simply looking for truth. We're not looking to expose what was in somebody's heart. However, I think those things are very difficult to separate when you're dealing with, you know, a jury of human beings who get swayed by emotional arguments very easily because they're human. We do often ascribe intent and motive behind those things, even when we're saying that we're not. It just seems to sort of come along with the territory, whether it's a, a, a right thing or a wrong thing to include there. You know, there are places that have hate crime laws, uh, which I, I think is very interesting. I, I, I think there are excellent arguments to be made about how those are implemented, because you are calling out somebody for the motive behind why they did something, why they injured or killed somebody else or, or vandalized or damaged property or whatever as a hate crime. However, it's an interesting question to also ask, is it correct to prosecute and punish somebody because of the intent? Does that make that any different from the crime that was actually carried out? You know, um, I, I don't have the definitive answer on this, but I, I know that whenever this sort of comes up in the news, that it is an interesting question to be able to play with, to say, well, yeah, we can ascribe intent, we can ascribe motivation, but does that, does that complicate things instead of just saying a crime was committed? All we're really interested in is just figuring out the truth of who did, who did what, and how they then get punished. I also find it interesting that that Worf has become a pawn of this greater power struggle between the Federation and the Klingon Empire, because yeah. Worf isn't really being put on trial necessarily at this time for his choice, his his action in in this tragedy. It's whether or not he's going to be tried in the Federation court system or the Klingon court system. Once he goes into the Klingon court system. He is. He will. He will be disassociated from any type of Federation justice or Federation justice trying to protect their own officer by basically judging him under Federation rule. Federation rule being, and this is from the Federation's point of view, being civilized versus the Klingons' code of justice, which is probably going to be a little bit more on the barbaric side. That being said. This is all really about saving face and expanding one's sphere of influence. And the battle that you're talking about, John, is this kind of will between the Federation represented by Cisco and the Empire represented by Chapak. And whose deception here is going to win out in the end? It is, you know, there is a, there's a very famous saying that sometimes the best weapons are not necessarily weapons of war, you know. It's weapons of um, weapons of words, and that's what's happening here. It's like who has the better weapons? But 
it still doesn't work for me because there's a Federation admiral that's overseeing the entire mm. proceeding. There's All right, here's a question for you, because when the big reveal happens that the ship didn't have those people on it, that the, the names were faked, they were from another accident long before, do we assume that Chapak did not know this? Because uh, I, I think it's fair either way. I think it's fair to say that this is new information to him. He's just there doing the job, doing the job to the best of his abilities. But he is also a pawn then in this, well, quote, conspiracy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to to frame Worf and to extradite Worf so he can be punished just for being, uh, you know, an enemy of the state. So you would look at this and say, all right, Chapak didn't know about it, but it's convenient that he can be manipulated and then manipulate the, the, the machinery of justice to get Worf out of there to do what we really want to do to Worf. But whether he knows about it or not, a certain level of higher-ups, a certain level of people within the Klingon Empire orchestrated this. They figured it out. So get Worf to wherever he's going. It kind of, it doesn't matter at a certain point. It's all a show anyway. It's all a show trial, no matter what. It's just a way to get Worf back there to punish and kill him. I think that this whole situation was operating at like Obsidian Order, Tal Shiar levels of conspiracy. (laughs) Because when you really look about it, if the Klingon Empire wins all of the agendas that they have put in motion, that means that they extradite Worf and they can end the House of Moog and Gowron wins unequivocally. He he erases the House Mm -hmm. of Moog from history. Worf being the, uh, you know, the, the factor in there. And then... They win the Pentath system because then the Klingons are going to be able to move in because the Federation will be shamed out of defending that position against the Cardassians because, like Chapak said, any reprisal by the Klingons is just them revenging themselves against this tragedy. So mm-hmm. it's win-win. If they only lose one point, it's still a win. They either get Worf or they get the Pentath system. I don't yeah. think that they were factoring on lose-lose. I don't think that they were factoring on <laughs> Odo finding that connection. And I think that's why that, that final scene where Odo's like, take this pad. It's really important. <laughs> and I don't trust anybody that's willing to give me information so easily. That just kind of, that was the red herring for Odo. And he was sniffing out something yeah. false. And he was like, no, no, you're just, you're just giving it up far too easily for me to trust this. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. the thing that the Klingons didn't expect. They didn't expect Odo to be the one to flip their to flip their strategy. And I do think that Chapak was caught unawares because it's either Ron Canada's that good of an actor or didn't interpret the the meaning behind his script. But when he was like, mm-hmm. uh, 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> that's when right. Cisco's like, Oh, you didn't know? I don't think that yeah. I don't think that Chapak was acting. I think that he was there. It was going to be an open and shut pre-trial case. He was going to take yeah. Worf back to Kronos, and that would be the end of it. And he's like, "Yep, next mission. You know, I, I'm good. You know, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm the Denny Crane of the Klingon system, right? Denny Crane, Denny right. Crane. See, the, the Klingons didn't count on there being uh, a paper trail for mm-hmm. everything. There's always a paper trail. 
So if, uh, however many it was, 441 people go down in a ship in the mountains, somewhere, somebody is going to have a record of that. The families of those people know what happened. It's, it's very hard to erase. So look, you know, very complex plan here, but also very difficult to pull off. But John, are we assuming then that when the, the transport went down in the mountains, that the Klingons were basically like... Um, is there a way that we can just shelve this for something later? <laughs> right. Because it wasn't yeah. like the day after. It was three months after. Yeah. yeah. So what happens to all the families, the grieving families of all of these people? They weren't, they weren't soldiers. They were civilians. They were women. They were children. Right. And their families, they would want to know something about that. I mean, no investigation can get, uh, it can get shelved for that long. Yeah. So that's a conspiracy. I mean, that's a lot of moving pieces to try and and keep out of the public information. Well, I think at best you have to figure the Klingons not all right. Look, this happened on our turf with our ship. We we might have a record on this. We might be aware of the grieving families and all the the aftermath of that crash. But somebody at a space station way off in the Bajoran system, they're they're not going to know the names. They're they're not going to follow up on that. I mean, for for incidents that have happened where there's been a crash or whatever, we definitely don't know the names of the people who were in a crash in you know somewhere on another continent. So maybe, just maybe, they thought it would get overlooked, but uh, they weren't counting on Odo and his keen sense of investigation. One of the things that probably the sticking point in this episode that just really did not sit well with me was Worf was so easily emotionally manipulated by Chapak to the point where he lashed out against him physically, proving Chapak's point that Worf has this inherent bloodlust for combat, that when he's challenged, he... He chooses violence over any other action. That's what he wants to do. He wants to lash out. Mm-hmm. He wants to retaliate. He wants to revenge himself about, about what just happened or how it transpired. And that was it. Like, yeah. Chapak literally had the, he had the right to try Worf on that alone. You attacked an official in court, right? So... Why did it just kind of poof, just go nowhere? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that is a good question. This is like, uh, hey, I'm going to prove that you're so Klingon. I'm going to corner you so you have to attack. Therefore, hey, I'm right. You, you, you are so Klingon that you attack me. Yeah, and then we're moving on. <laughs> right. Like literally when Worf gets up and, and beats him down with really nice martial arts, Klingon, he's tough. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's like that's that's exactly why they are there. That's exactly why Chapak is arguing his point is that Worf is a warrior and he chooses violence over reason. Period. <laughs> you could not illustrate a point more clearly than that at that moment. And that just is like, okay, it must be something to do with honor or something. And that is why Chapak is so good. Denny Crane. <laughs> There are three kinds of folks who sit around and think about how to kill people. Psychopaths, mystery writers, and Klingons. I wonder what kind page better. So in the tradition of Mission Log and what we do, we take a look at all of the aspects of what we've discussed, very much like the trial or the pre-trial sequence that we have seen here in Rules of Engagement, and see what is the truth. 
what matters most, and did we get to a point of understanding? So, John, how did you feel about this episode, the morals, the meanings, the messages, and does this episode hold up for you? Are you asking me for my closing argument, sir? Well— I am, sir. Uh, here we go. Uh, look, it's, it's good. It's a very good episode. I don't think it's necessarily the greatest Star Trek or the greatest DS9. It's solid. It, it's, look, this is weird because it's a procedural show. And that isn't what Star Trek usually does. There are examples of it. Obviously, we had uh, Court Martial. We had uh, Measure of a Man. But when you dig deeply into something like Measure of a Man, well, that, that was a very unique, very special episode because of what it was really getting at at its heart. Look, in a procedural like this, you present this nearly impossible situation. You get our characters right up to the edge. And then you save them through some clever reasoning and, and last-minute evidence, and very last-minute evidence, as they did here. You know, it sort of makes me think of, like, my cousin Vinny <laughs> in that way. There are some things that are out of place, like you have the contractual obligation of having all the major characters in there. So there's Quark, who, you know, look, Armin is always great anyway, but then that scene is kind of superfluous. It's fun, it's funny, but it is a little out of place. I love the stylistic choice here to have the characters break the fourth wall. And you really can't get away with that most of the time. I can't think of any other example in Star Trek where they've done that. Most shows can't and don't get away with that, so they don't do it. But somehow, it really works here. And I'm glad they didn't pull a save by the bell and, and freeze everybody in the scene. I, I loved how smoothly it was played out, whereas this very organic thing of you're in the middle of a scene, a character turns the camera, but the scene is still happening behind them. Timing was amazing, though, flowing in and out of that. It was just absolutely perfect. Ron Canada, as you pointed out, he just nails it. He's so good as Chapak. And this whole thing could have been very dry on paper, but his performance and the creativity in direction, so shout out here to LeVar Burden, those are the things that give this episode life, that, that make it go beyond just a courtroom procedural drama. If you were to strip all of that away, I don't think it would really be a great courtroom procedural drama. I don't even know if it would be great... DS9. Because at the end of the day, well, look, we, we've spent a lot of time with Worf trying to figure out what makes him tick, kind of beating him up, <laughs> and, you know, and really figure out where his loyalties are and, and who he is. Um, this is a sort of like one more look at that same thing. So is it really necessary? Probably not. But from a stylistic, from an acting point of view, it's good. Very entertaining, very enjoyable. Uh, what about you, Norman? Well, I agree. I, I find nothing on paper or academically wrong or, or even uh, an issue with this episode. It, it delivers for me on very many positive strengths. It is a very good, well-acted, well-directed, well-produced episode of Star Trek. And I really think that if you wanted to do it, if, or if fans out there wanted to do it, you could actually do this 
in a in a play type format because there mm. aren't very many sets that you need to change. You mm-hmm. have the wardroom and you have maybe Odo's station and you have uh, a couple of instances in the hallway. And that's really it uh, aside from some of the intercutting of of the uh of the defiant shooting down the transport ship, but that can be written out. So that the strengths of this all really hinge on Chapak. I don't know if I would have enjoyed this episode as much if Ron Canada wasn't in that role. He really mm. delivered for me. And I really like the the breaking the fourth wall. I think that was done really well, and it does really lend itself to that, that play-type format. But more importantly, John, what is the message? What is the well, message that you get from this? Hey, hey I'm, I, before we get to that, I'm actually I'm going to challenge you a little bit here. Oh, okay. Sure. You, you, you said something there in your uh, your your assessment about how this is really strong Star Trek, and I agree with you that this would work well as a play. And I love episodes like that where it's very intimate and it just relies on the strength of the actors. We're not relying on special effects. We're not relying on huge mythologies or anything. It's just like, get to the core of it, get to the heart of it and who these people are and how they interact, right? That Mm -hmm. to me is the soul of the drama here. But I think about another episode that does that, Duet. Probably my favorite Deep Space Nine episode so far. And that plays out in a very similar way. You just you have the characters, the intimacy of their emotional lives exposed, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, that episode is not only a great drama, not only a great piece for the actors, but it's very Star Trek. You know, especially where you land at the end of that episode. And for those who, who have forgotten, we, we have the so-called Butcher of Galatep, who isn't really who he says he is, showing up on DS9 to turn himself in to atone for the crimes of the Cardassians that they, uh, that they perpetrated on the Bajorans. To me, where that episode lands is very Star Trek, because it's about... It's about Kira finding compassion and empathy for the quote-unquote enemy, right? And, and this tragic ending that we have more for uh, Maratza. Uh, Maratza? Maritza. Maritza. Maritza, yes. Yeah. So that, that tragic ending that we have for him really says something uh, about compassion and understanding who the enemy is, that maybe the enemy is a person who deserves some understanding. So to me, that had a very Star Trek message in it. I'm curious, and maybe this is a segue to the to the morals, meanings, messages. What What is the message here that says to you that this is very Star Trek? Because I think it's very good. I think it's very good drama. I think it's performed very well. I think it's directed very well. I think there are some revealing things about Worf that have already been revealed. So where is the Star Trek here necessarily? Well, I think it's in the idea of Worf trying to wrestle with living in two worlds, trying to find out his role in both worlds, the best of both worlds, if you will. Mm. Because if they spent more time, and I'm not saying that they did it perfectly, and Mm -hmm. if they did do it with a little bit more nuance, I think that would have been more to the Star Trek uh, mentality that duet was because duet mm-hmm. the ending in duet is bar none one of the best endings of star trek or of tv i've ever seen the yeah. way that they subverted maritza's uh and and kira's story but i think that in that in that time when cisco was giving his cisco dad talk to Worf, 
if Worf really felt, and if Michael Dorn, and, and I'm not, no disrespect to Michael Dorn, because I think he's a fantastic mm-hmm. actor, but yeah. I think that if it was written right, where Worf's like, I have to choose, I have to choose between Federation or Klingon. I have to be one of these, one of these two worlds. I can't just keep being forgiven to walk the line between both. Mm-hmm. Then I think that would have been a struggle, and he had to sacrifice and give up something. That's the one thing in this episode that it's it's alluded to when when Chapak was saying, "What are you? Are you Klingon? Are you human? You are raised by human, but you wear the uniform. Are you are you a warrior or are you not?" And Worf at the end, he's like, "In order for me to do my role properly, I have to give up being Klingon, mm-hmm. or in order for me to be a Klingon proper, I have to give up being Starfleet." But what happens in this episode is he's forgiven by both. You know, he's forgi- hmm. not re- necessarily forgiven, but he's resolved in his storyline from the consequences of both. And it's just, there's no sacrifice being made. And without sacrifice, there's not consequence. And without consequence, there's no change to the character's needs. And Worf needs to choose or else he can't be, he can't 100% give himself to either of these two entities that he is loyal to. And that I don't think that makes for great drama anymore because it's been done so many times and done so repeatedly already in this season. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's, or if, that's or if you can be whoever you want to be, <laughs> big guy. <laughs> I, I think, you know, if I'm looking for messages here, uh, and it really is about Worf, I, you know, something that stuck with me right away was the fact that he took this mission at all you know vengeance is a distraction that that will take you off the path of being who you could or should be and he knew that you know that that i i think it all gets summed up here at the very end where he is getting addressed and dressed down by cisco i wonder if had this played out differently in a different timeline, if uh, Cisco gave him the command and said, "Here, take the uh, take the Defiant, go do this, go go protect these Cardassian ships that are being attacked by Klingons," if Worf had turned down that mission, would Cisco have accepted that? Perhaps because I think that would have informed Cisco that Worf is in some way emotionally attached to the mission. Mm-hmm. And he has, it's kind of like um, being vetted, you know, during the Wadir process as a witness. You know, if you are in any way influenced for any reason by being part of this procedure, then we must, you know, excuse you because you have emotional, you have a, an emotional tie to your decision-making process. And Worf admits that. He says that, of course, you know, mm-hmm. he says, I hope they do attack me. He's, emotionally committed to a completely different agenda. The other thing I found that was interesting was if he, in fact, was walking the line between the Federation and the Klingon Empire, and I'm trying to pull this from memory, when he was sitting there in the courtroom in full dress attire, he was not wearing his Klingon warrior's sash. Right. Right. Okay. So I actually left that out of trivia because I I wondered if it would come up. Uh, There was a, I believe there was something written early on, although it didn't make it into shooting, didn't make it into the final script, whatever it was, where uh, Chipok is actually the one who who demands, (laughs) requests, recommends that Worf not wear that particular Klingon garb 
while he is on trial as a Starfleet officer, or not on trial, but uh, a part of this hearing. Mm -hmm. So they did actually make a point of it at at one time in the script, but then that that got lost as the the script developed on. Oh, that's a shame, because I think that's actually a very important yeah. A very important detail when it comes to how Chapak sees Worf. Yeah. Right? He's like, yeah. you're not. He goes, you are a Federation officer, and this is the reason why I, ha- I have been sent here, because I need to bring you back uh, as mm-hmm. a Klingon. So what are you? Are you a Federation officer or a Klingon? And I think that that's just, again, I know that I've probably beaten this, uh, beaten this targ to a pulp. <laughs> but if, if there was um, a message here for me, it's that no matter what you do, in life as a person, every single day is like the Kobayashi Maru. And and the defiant firing on that ship was like a very Kobayashi Maru-type moment. It's mm. not a question of whether or not you're going to win a no-win scenario. It's a question of what do you do as a person to inform your character to live with that decision? What Kirk yeah. says to Savick, it's not about win or lose. It's about a test of character and what do you do from that moment. And in this case... Worf doesn't learn about a test of character because there are no real consequences to what he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's uh, if he learns anything, it's uh, only by the end of the episode of getting uh, getting dressed down by Cisco. You know, I, I think that that's really the important stuff here. And there is a nice little Cisco line at the end of this. Part of being a captain is knowing when to smile. I actually like that. I mean, it's a little bit of a throwaway, but I, I like the idea of Cisco being aware of the kind of emotional component of being in command. It's something that we saw Picard develop over time. It's something that I think we saw Kirk have pretty early on, that he, he's a part of the crew. He's not just the guy in charge of the crew. Uh, so I... I I, I did think that that was um, it was a little bit of a way to add a a more personal button to the end of that very tense scene, that very intense moment. But there's a lot of truth in that. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, please be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Hard Time. There are 8 million stories in the Naked Quadrant. This has been one of them. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com.
the Roddenberry Podcast Network.